Good morning. How's everyone doing? All right. Excellent. Hey, a few quick announcements. Uh, just a reminder that on Tuesday is Nick, Nick Lee's ordination. So that's great. I believe it goes from 10 to 1230. So please join us at the, uh, at the PO here on Tuesday. Also, don't forget that right after uh, service today, we're going to have a uh, church business meeting. And so for both members and those that are just interested in joining as well, please uh, stay afterwards. Uh, we're going to go through some things on the life and restore and give you an update accordingly. And I believe that is it. So let's bow our heads in prayer and ask God to teach and grow us and stretch us. Father, we just thank you for the gift of life. You are a holy, holy, holy God called us to glorify you, not ourselves. And so, Father, may the words today do just that. Um, may you be glorified uh, and not anything else. Um, may the, uh, the steering of our hearts is, is that much more towards you at the end of this. May we have some aha and questions and so on that causes us to take deeper dives into the life, your giving word, uh, to be more transformed in your son's likeness. And so, um, most importantly, may we just see more of your son, Jesus. Lift these things up in your son's matchless name. Amen. So, what was a few? Driving a car. You guys uh, ever drive a car and you're driving, you see one, see a car like drifting over into your lane, <laughs> and then you you go up on the side and they're like this. Or sometimes it's you. Oh, I can look at, I can take this one look text and your car is like going over and drifting. Um, and there's been, and you know, as we've seen statistics are alarming, that's devastating consequences when you drift too much and don't pull your eyes back up quick enough. Uh, and inevitably that's the, the hard part of that. Um, what about as a parent? Because some of you who are parents, you know, you go out with your kids. Everything's safe when you're at home. You go out with your kids. It's this heightened sense of anxiety and concern about keeping your eye on your kid because you know everything they see is like something shiny, and they're going to walk over towards it. And you're like, stay next to me, pay attention. And you're also telling yourself, pay attention. Can't really get too much in the conversation because one wrong move, they drift off, and it can have dire consequences. Uh, any of you ever been snorkeling? Anyone have been snorkeling here before? Never done it. Would love to try it. Seems like fun. Um, I was reading an article by a commentator say he went snorkeling and they were giving him instructions saying, listen, you can stay within this area, but if you go out here, you get caught by that wave and you will drift off. And we've seen the bodies wash on the shore. Dire consequences. I went one time swimming not swimming, I shouldn't say swimming. My wife and I were dating, because I don't swim much. <laughs> we went to Metro Park uh, and took our bikes with us, and we went to the beach. And, and what I noticed is they had right there in the beach in the water, they had an area sectioned off, and they just said, stay within this area. And if you go outside of that, you know, there's more danger, and the waves could grab you, and you could drift off. And so in every sing single situation, we see a a thing where we need to pay attention. We have to pay attention. Or you could drift. Or you could drift. And I think that's exactly what 
the writer in the book of Hebrews is saying to us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where he says, pay attention. Pay attention to what you have heard as to not drift. And so we're going to dive in. And I call this pay attention to the message. And we'll be answering the question of what message and, and why. Why should we pay attention to this? And I think he sets up a, a, a great um, just lead-in in the first verse itself saying, hey, pay attention. And then 2, 3, and 4 is this is why. This is the foundation of truth as why we should pay attention as to not drift. So let's dive in. So four different divisions I have today. One is pay attention to the message as to not drift. The second, pay attention to the message as to not ignore so great a salvation. The third, pay attention to the message because it is announced by God and confirmed by the hearers. And the fourth, pay attention to the message because it's testified to by God. So let's dive in. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received as just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. That is a very powerful four verses. We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. What is it that they've heard? What is the message? That's the question we want to ask ourselves first. What is it they should be paying close attention to? And in order to do that, we will need to go back to Hebrews chapter 1, and that gives us a clue. So we'll set the stage real quick. You know, there's a little house church, uh, and the writer is specifically talking to the Christian community in which they are in a Jewish community and being heavily persecuted. And as you read throughout the books of Hebrew, you will see that he commends them for persevering for in the midst of persecution. He commends them for for those that were in prison for sticking behind them and persevering through that. Actually, one of them that was released from prison was Timothy. And so the writer of Hebrews is very aware and knows Timothy, which is why they kind of speculate, was it Paul? Was it? But at the end of the day, they come to the conclusion, we don't know because God didn't want us to know. And that's not the most important part. So they're under persecution from the Jewish community, and there seem to be some things they're struggling in that modern-day Judaism, and you could tell from looking at Hebrews chapter 1. So let's read through it real quick, Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, this is salvation that he's talking about here, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. 
For which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So I'll stop there. We can see in here he addresses the thing about angels. Angels. Why is he saying that? Because at that time in modern-day Judaism, at that time, they were struggling. There was this thing, this hang-up on angels. Kind of harkens back to Romans 1 where he says they worshipped the created things over the creator. And so he's saying, no, Jesus, not angels, is what it's all about. And he's far superior to angels. Matter of fact, it lets them know everything in the universe was created through Jesus. That would even include the angels. That's why he makes this statement. Which of the angels did he say to, you're my begotten son? Which of the angels did he say to, as you read further, you will sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool? As you read further and further, he just keeps making this, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the angels. He's superior. He's the one that was sent to purify us for our sins. It is a salvation message that he's delivering. And he's telling this local church, in the midst of persecution, restore, in the midst of any persecution, focus on Jesus. Pay attention. Don't drift. Stick to the message that you've heard. So when he's talking about not drifting, I know we gave a few, talked through a few things in the beginning. But what exactly is drifting? Definition of drifting, carried slowly by a current of air or water. You're carried slowly. And if we flip that from a, a gospel perspective, slowly you're carried away by the currents of the world. Slowly you're carried away by the currents of the world. So quick question, who is he specifically addressing? Because we can easily think, well, okay, we can drift. Can a Christian drift away? He says in the book of John, the Father has him in in his hand and no one can take him out. Is there a drifting in the Christian's life sometimes? Oh, sure. That way you kind of get entertained by the things of the flesh in this world, and you get pulled in different directions. But the key part there, the spirit of the God is there. And so whatever you're struggling with, there's going to be a ping of pulling back into right place by the very spirit, confirming your call and election in Jesus Christ. So he's not necessarily talking to them. Then there's those who don't know God. Now, while we know that you know from the scriptures, God has made it clear In all of creation, his divine nature, and everyone will receive enough revelation before the last days. Right now, we're still moving towards that, where the word salvation is being delivered, and and hearts are being softened, and people have a chance to reject or accept what has clearly been laid before them. So if someone has not heard the gospel, then is it possible they could drift from the gospel? So that excludes them. So we have what is left in the middle. 
the Christian that claims God, looks like he's all in, but he never had a heart for God, never had truly repented of his sins and had faith in Jesus. And that could be very confusing because as soon as someone says Jesus, we're like, that's my guy. They say Jesus. Demons say Jesus, and they don't, they don't stop being demons. What's a few examples in the scriptures of individuals who would claim the name of Christ or the Messiah, and they never knew him? I'll give you one hint for one. He walked with Jesus. He was one of the 12. Judas. Judas, if you watch his life with Jesus, the disciples did not know. When Jesus was saying, one of you are going to betray me, they're like, surely not one of us. Didn't know. I like to think that I would know. You know, sometimes, oh, I'll know, because they didn't do this, then they don't know Jesus. You know, we're going to be very surprised. There's going to be people in heaven that you didn't expect to ever see. Bill, what are you doing here, man? I didn't know what you were heck. Don't call the comeback. I can't believe it. No. Or the person that you, hey, I really expected John to be there. What's going on? Why isn't he here? We're going to be surprised by the people that are there, and we're going to be surprised by the people that are not there. Only God knows the heart. And we would not have known that Judas was Judas if not for by grace through the Spirit of God revealing this to us. Look at what it says in the book of Matthew. Actually, in the book of John, let's, let's go with what we have in Scripture about Judas itself. I'll give you a few pieces out of John. Judas was in charge of the group's money. That's in the book of John 13. He was a thief who regularly stole from it in John 12, 6. He was known to be a liar in the book of John, who was deceitful and greedy in the book of Matthew 26. He was called a traitor in the book of Luke. He was identified as a betrayer during the last Passover in the book of John. Those things were only revealed by the Spirit of God. They did not know this. If you think about it, he bled with them. He mourned with them. He worshiped with them. He served with him. Looked like a Christian to all the other disciples. Who else? Who else? What group knew the word, word for word, taught the word, and did reject and rejected the Messiah? The Pharisees. They were teachers of the law. Matter of fact, Jesus even said, he told his disciples in the book of Matthew, hey, what they teach, listen to. What they practice, don't, because they're hypocrites. What did he say to them in Matthew 23? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Wow, that's a heavy statement. He's letting them know, you don't enter the kingdom of heaven, you're hellbound. And you're trying to prevent other people from knowing truth. Yet the Pharisees looked very religious. They had their beads, they had their, their cloak, they, they, they walked around with the scripture they did have, they, they prayed in public, they were very religious looking people. Would we know? That could be a, a pastor, a priest, any person that has been shepherding and, and been involved in the kingdom for a long time, 
I've seen it where some pastors say, you know, I've been pastoring for 20 years and my heart was never about Christ and repent and come to faith in Christ for the first time in their life. That's crazy. But it's true. Who else? There is, there was a close friend of Paul's that he talks about in Philemon and in Colossians towards the end. And he served with the brother. And then by 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, Demas is in love with this present world. And that was it. He's gone off. He's in the world. Someone that served with him, that was close with Paul, and now the friendship is fractured. He's a drifter who never came back. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about people who drift and, and come back. That, that's part of their walk. We're talking about those who claim the name of Jesus, look the part, and don't have Jesus in their heart. And it's a slow drift. They might not even know what's happening. You definitely don't know what's happening. Then you're surprised when they're gone. So pay attention to the message as to not drift. And that was in verse 1. Now, let's get into the next piece. Pay attention to the message as to not ignore so great a salvation, which is Hebrews 2 through, I would say, 3a, the first part of verse 3. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received this just punishment, how shall we escape so great a salvation? There's a lot to unpack in here. So... When he's talking about, for since the message spoken through angels is binding every violation, it's amazing how you can read through scriptures and just ignore various parts. And, you know, all the time of my years walking with the Lord, I've read about how Moses received the law from God, and I never considered anything else. But if you go into Deuteronomy 33, 2, one of the things it says, Mount Sinai, where the Lord gave the law to Moses, it says, from ten thousands of holy ones, letting you know the angels were present. In Acts 7.53, now this is in Acts chapter 7, from 1 to 53, this is kind of Stephen leading all the way up to the point where he gets stoned, and he's given uh, an account uh, before the Sanhedrin, is saying, you're the ones that rejected the prophets, you're the one that rejected my, uh, the Messiah, and then in the end, he was stoned by the group of them. But right before that, in verse 53, he says, you who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. In Galatians 3.19, uh, in a reference to the law, it says, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What it's saying is, listen, on Mount Sinai, when Moses received the law, the Lord was there. There was 10,000 angels there. He spoke to the angels, to Moses, who was the intermediary who delivered it to the people. That's what it's saying. So, when we go back to the verse, and it says, for since the message spoken through angels was binding, well, the message was spoken through angels to the intermediary, which was Moses. What does it mean it was binding? And when we talk about the message, they're talking about, folks, the, the, the old covenant, the old covenant. So, under the Old Covenant, as we know, there were ceremonial, ceremonial laws, there were sacrifices, and so on, that God was teaching the people of Israel that they were a wicked people, and that if he was going to come amongst them, as you see that common theme, and be their God, and they be his people, they needed to be right before him. 
And so under the old covenant, they, they had to, for every, for any sins and so on, they get a blemished animal, unblemished animal, excuse me, and there would be a sacrifice uh, with the high priest for their sins. And this is something that went on and on and on. But what it really did was point to the fact that there needed to be atonement for their sins. As it says in the book of Leviticus, your life is in the blood and I've given it to you to atone for your transgressions, for your sins. And so it was doing just that. And he's saying that old covenant was binding. It was binding. But is it the only thing we have? That old covenant was the old covenant pointing to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So stick with me on this. In the old covenant, if we go to the book of Matthews, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen, will be any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The law is still binding onto God. And any violation or disobedience received is just punishment. So what we're doing now, we're just laying the groundwork for where is he getting at when he goes from it's binding and how much greater is the salvation. So now stay with me. This is the old covenant piece we're talking about. So sometimes with the old covenant, this is pre-Jesus coming in the flesh. We see punishment that came directly from heaven sometimes. We see punishment that came directly through legal processes. In 1 Corinthians 10, 5 through 10, it's a great example. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with both of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, got up to indulge in, in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by destroying angels. So this is pointing to the fact that under the Old Covenant, the law was perfect, but we couldn't fulfill it. And any punishment that happened to you for disobedience was just. It was binding. Let's go on. Numbers 15, 32 through 36. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found them gathered, gathering wood brought them to Moses and Aaron in the whole assembly, and they kept them in custody because it was not clear what should be done about him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. The old covenant, <laughs> this is the result of that. This is all you had. You couldn't fulfill the law. It was pointing to the future promise of Christ. And if you broke the law, there was still punishment for your disobedience. Anyone remember Korah, Dathan, Abram rebelled against Moses? What happened? 
swallowed up in the ground. Aaron's son, Nadab, Abihu, were consumed by fire, Leviticus 10. A generation of Israelites who didn't trust God were made to wander in the wilderness and then die because of their disobedience. So the common thought that the old covenant was just, was more serious. But in actuality, the new covenant of salvation is more serious. And the argument he's making is if the lesser, the old covenant, that lesser revelation was so binding, how much more binding is the work on the cross of salvation through Christ? And if we reject that, what do we have left? What do you have left? You see the results of them rejecting the old covenant. They reject Christ, which is the greater salvation. What do you have left? And this spells this out in Matthew is one example. Chapter 11, 23 through 24. Jesus pronounced judgment on the Pharisees in Capernaum, where many miracles were performed by him. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Perfect example. Rejecting salvation, the greater salvation, there is nothing left. It's worse for them then Sodom. And in the end, yes, all sinners go in the same place. But it's giving you an indication here. Woe to them for rejecting Christ, the greater salvation, for Sodom on the day of judgment. It'll be more bearable what they'll get than what you will get. That's a pretty heavy statement. Pay attention as to not ignore so great a salvation. Let me ask you. Do you have salvation? Have you heard the message and truly accepted the message? The Lord tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But by grace, we have redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us that God made Christ a sacrifice of atonement by the shedding of his blood for our sins. By through which we have faith. And so I'm not talking about the pray after me. I know Pastor Mike always brings the pray after me, one, two, three. <laughs> I'm talking about what is the fruit in your life. I ask that because my little six-year-old, by the grace of God, said, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be with Christ and repent of my sins. And, and um, she was walked through that. And, and one of the things I look at her and say, okay, now... We got to live this out. You just don't have Christ and you go back and you play and everything. What does it look like for you right now in your life? You're a six-year-old with parents. And what does that obedience look like onto Christ? And the same thing goes with you. Wherever you are in your life, what is the fruit of the Christ that you claim is in you? That is the difference between a drifter that never knew God and someone that just be temporary where the spirit goes, nope, your mind brings them right back. Do you have the message of salvation? So pay attention to the message as to not drift. Pay attention to the message as to not ignore so great a salvation. And pay attention to the message 
as it is announced by God and confirmed by the hearers. And that's going to be verse 3b or the second half of verse 3. The salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. This message of salvation is of most importance because it was announced by God himself. We can go back to Hebrews for that. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, but in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. God himself came and rescued us, people. That's awesome news. God himself stepped out of heaven before he spoke through to the prophets, preparing us for the moment that he would come down incarnate in the flesh and fulfill his own law and take on his own wrath to protect people, to save a people unto him that deserve no saving. And in John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me, given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father am one. If anyone ever says to you, Christ never claimed to be God, well, here it is right here. You start saying, I and God are one. That's a heavy statement in any generation, especially back then. That's why when Jesus said to them, before Abraham was, before Abraham, I am. He didn't say I was. He said, before Abraham, I am. Because when Moses said, who should I tell sent me? He said, tell them I am who I am sent, sent you. So they would have known that if he says, I am, he was claiming to be God. And this statement as well verifies that. Confirmed by those who heard him. You know, what does that mean? We think about the lives of the apostles. They confirmed it. They lived with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to his teachings. They lived every day with him. Therefore, those who heard it confirmed it. It was also confirmed in their life and their ministry as well, correct? What about the open grave? The open tomb, I should say. Did not Peter and John that rushed to the tomb, would they not have known if Christ was really resurrected or not? Yes. 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to move to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one of untimely birth. And Paul is referring to himself and his encounter on the road to Damascus. So that's a lot of verification there, folks, a lot. So the Hebrews writer is saying we pay attention to the message because God testifies, confirms it, but also 
the hearers confirm it as well. So, we are called to pay attention by the writer of the Hebrews. What about you? Does your life confirm that which you have heard in Jesus? That's really what it comes down to. I know it's the same question I asked before, but that's really what it comes down to. What is the fruit in your life onto Jesus? Will it be perfect? No. Will it be a slow growth? Sometimes. Will it be fast? Sometimes. It depends on the work of the Spirit according to his will. But there will be fruit nonetheless onto this great God, Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Not just because you say Jesus, because your heart has been transformed, and now the works that come out of your hands and your body and out of your mouth is that more centered on Jesus himself, aligning with the disciples and prophets beforehand, showing this is what it means to be in Jesus. Another way to pay attention and to avoid the drift. You don't end up being someone who never knew Jesus. Pay attention as is announced by God and confirmed by the hearers. And we get into the fourth. Pay attention to the message as it is testified to by God himself. And that'll be in verse four. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributing according, distributed according to his will. Acts 2.22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man credited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Or 2 Corinthians 12, 12. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. That's Paul speaking. You can go throughout the book of Acts and find tons of miracles and signs. I mean, starting in, in Acts, well, let's just start with the indwelling of the Spirit. And what the disciples did then, speaking in tongues, in the languages of those, so they can deliver the truth about salvation. That was a sign. That was a miracle. Peter heals a lame man in Acts 3. Ananias and Sapphira struck by the dead. Acts 5. Peter and John communicate the Holy Spirit. Acts 8. Peter heals Aeneas of palsy. Acts 9. Peter delivered out of the prison by an angel. Acts 12. Paul converted. Acts 9. Paul heals a cripple. Acts 14. Paul casts out a spirit of divination. Acts 16, Paul and Silas, prison doors opened by earthquake. Acts 16, and on and on and on. This is testified to by God through all his works, confirming it truly indeed is God. Pay attention to the message as it is testified to by God. Pay attention to the message as to not drift. Pay attention to the message as to not ignore such a great salvation. Pay attention to the message as it is confirmed, it is announced by God and confirmed by the hearers. So the question becomes, what should we do to ensure we're not drifting? So several things that we can do to ensure that we're not drifting and focus on. One, focus on the supremacy of Christ. So when Pastor Mike said last week that if we must be willing 
to allow the scriptures to trump our, our emotions, our feelings, our experience. That's making Christ, focusing on the supremacy of Christ. It's about Christ, as the Hebrew writer said. So if it's about Christ, then since the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, to focus on the supremacy of Christ is to focus on the supremacy of his word. And so therefore, we must increase in our focus on that. That means putting aside the noise of everything else. It's not my feelings, my emotions, what I think I experienced. If it's not in scriptures, we may want to go in a different direction with that. Just take an ultra-conservative approach on that. We got to work at it. We got to work at it. You can't study up on Christ one day and then the next several days, you just take in the world. That's a losing battle. Even if you really do know Christ and have Christ in you, you're going to be in an immature state for the rest of your life. You'll never mature as he calls us to, commands us to. You got to work at it. How's your daily grind towards Christ? I hate to call it a grind, but when you're in the day and maybe some of you have several kids or a few kids or no kids and you're single and you're just busy, how do you focus on Christ in the middle of that? Do you feel that nudge? I need my Christ. I need more of my God. I've got to make my day centered on it the best I can. When I start the morning, in the middle of the day, before I go to bed at night, I need Christ who's doing a great work in me. You got to work at it. You got to meditate on day and night. The scriptures that, that you study, we should be thinking about it, chewing on it. How is it impacting me? Where's the result? Where do I see Jesus? And what does that mean for me in my walk today? We've got to meditate on day and night. And I know a lot of you are in busy stages of life. Sometimes you're in school, you're just like, man, I'm just trying to keep an eye open. We've got to cram it in there the best we can. Focus must be on Christ. We've got to ask questions and take deep dives into the very word. You know, one of the ways I came to Christ was I was dragged into a Bible study program, and I was in it for like 13 years. And one of the things that happened is that they wouldn't just hand you the scripture. It was always a breakdown of the scripture. And the Lord would soften my heart to see the breakdown, and then it would be the links to other scriptures from Old and New Testament, and that just lit me on fire. And before I knew it, in all of my laziness, because still very lazy, um, then just naturally out of it was second nature. I just crave, I don't open, I don't look at a verse without wanting a breakdown of it. I don't just look at the verse. I'm looking at a breakdown or a commentary. I'm always looking at a breakdown, not because of anything great in me, because I am very lazy on it, but because of what was built in me by Christ. And so we've got to take deep dives. We've got to ask questions. We want to know how this all links up and see the glory of God in increasing fashion with that. We've got to memorize scripture. We've got to take time and memorize scripture. Maybe it's one verse and that's all you can do for the day. Well, then touch it 10, 20 times throughout the day, memorizing it and thinking about it and chewing on it. And most importantly, we have to worship him. We've got to worship him. Just what we're doing now, we sing to him. We, we fellowship together. We dive in the word together. We see the preaching of the word. We encourage each other on to the things of him. But we worship him. We, we don't forsake the gathering. Because there's much happening in us that we don't see. In other words, 
I love this verse. It, it really comes back to the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give, you, give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on, bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. He's saying your entire household needs to permeate Jesus. You can't do that. Focus on Jesus once in a week. You got to focus on Jesus every single day. There's no way that you can impress them on your children if you're not impressing them on yourself. That's why here, one of the important pieces for us is not our children's ministry, but in the children's ministry, how we can help the parents better teach the children at home. That's why Brother Nick and his wife are building this out slowly, and part of it is, is, is going to be how can we help the parents do a better job, or if they don't know what that looks like, to really pursue Jesus at home with their children, because that's where it starts. And when you talk about when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, man, in order for you to do that, you really got to be taking in a lot of Jesus. Think about your jobs that you have. You're there eight, nine hours a day or 10 hours, whatever, and you become an expert at it. You know it after a while because you've been absorbing it. Imagine what it would be like to absorb Jesus that much throughout the day. Then would, would that Shema be more of a bright light in your household? So it's not beating you down. It's just encouragement to all of us. That's the mark. We want our lives when we walk along the way, when we sit down, when we lay in bed, when we get up, when we talk to our children, when we talk to our friends. It permeates Jesus because it's just second nature for us. And the last thing I would point out to you, there's a miracle that happens every day. when someone repents of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. That is a, a miracle sign right before our very eyes that further lets us know that God is moving forward and he is powerful and he has a plan and he's accomplishing it and it should charge us up so we can pay attention to the message and not be one who just is giving lip service and drifting off because we never knew Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, you are <clears throat> the great I am. You knitted us together in, in, in wombs. You knew us before we existed. You call us to your glory, not ours. You love us eternally, providing your son Jesus. Oh, how personal that is that before you spoke through the prophets, and now you came down and spoke directly to us. My heart isn't charged up enough for that, Father. Would you, would you spark a greater understanding in me and in us that we are more excited about that? That you, holy God, step out of heaven and come to us and save us for your love for us. May we be more transformed, Lord. 
ever-increasing breath and moment that we have in your son's likeness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.